Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 40. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 40. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 899. Please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here, and i um, glad so many of us could also be joining us online. Before I start, I just wanted to give a quick announcement. Uh, because COVID cases have been rising in our area, I just want to remind everybody to stay vigilant, um, continue to do everything that you can, uh, your due diligence to uh, make sure that you're doing all the things that would protect you and protect others uh, from COVID. And so even when we come here, I just want to remind you again, part of phase two was when you come early in the morning, we were asking that people come earlier so that you can sign in, check in, have your temperature checks done, and then go straight to the assigned seats that your ushers would give you, that you wouldn't roam around or you know, say hi to the babies or things like that. And so just go to your seat and then prepare your hearts for worship in that manner. And if you're home joining us online, that I am continually asking that you pray for us gathering here and that hopefully also that we could all gather one day uh, freely, um, dare I say, even without masks, right? So we want to continue to pray for that. But until then, please do your due diligence. If you're showing symptoms, um, don't show up, stay home, get tested. If you've met with people and you're showing symptoms, then I would also assume that you would be smart enough to get tested right away so that you could share uh, what the results are and then quarantining um, where it's necessary. Uh, we as a church will do also our due diligence in making sure that we'll help uh, not you know, promote but stave off 
this kind of spread and infection. And so please keep us in prayer too. And I hope that we can continue to gather together to worship God because that is uh, the most joyful thing that we could do as believers. So uh, with that, let's start today's message with a prayer. <clears throat> Let your gospel, O Lord, come to us uh, not only in word, but also in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience and enduring your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, we've been learning in 1 Corinthians for the past several weeks uh, what marriage is about, what singleness is about, and we've come, to this, we've come to the end of this particular portion on singleness. And many of you are challenged uh, that I've heard some blessed and even perhaps maybe a little confused. And I believe it's because that the biblical worldview that's being shown here isn't something that even if you grew up in the church, it isn't something that you may have been subjected to or taught. And maybe hearing some of these things can even be a little jarring. How could I have gone to church for so long, perhaps live my life, and learn to the effect that if you're single too long, um, you know, if you're single too long, the, the thing that you want to tell yourself is, blasted be my bones, right? And what kind of parents would want their single kid to listen or read 1 Corinthians 7, right? Perhaps you are married, and you think that this doesn't apply to you. Let me just say this to, in answer to all these questions that you may have. Uh, every single thing in the Bible applies to us. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And it's so that we could be equipped for every good work. There is nothing in the Bible that's irrelevant. And if you've been with me over the last however many years, uh, listening week by week, this is exactly what we see as we go over verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book of God's Word. But you would have also noticed that as we have gone over week by week or week after week, you also are being changed. The things that may have been difficult for you before are a little easier for you to understand. And dare I say, even beautiful. Because these aren't just any words written by just anyone. We are being changed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And this is our act of worship to the Father through spirit and in truth, this is important to recognize that our hearts and minds must be given to the Lord in worship. This is how we honor God. And this is the duty of any man who should stand here on the pulpit on Sunday to give you the message. And this is what Jonathan Edwards says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers 
as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth. And even passages like the one that was read today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, can and they do raise our affections for our Lord. And as we've been seeing, singleness as a gift is a beautiful thing in the Lord. This was completely countercultural then as it is probably today. This doesn't mean, of course, that marriage is bad or even subpar, but it does show how God views singleness and marriage. Marriage is good. It's right there in the second verse of this chapter. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It helps keep us from the temptation of sexual immorality. After hearing that, you might say, ah, but I thought you said that last week. Marriage doesn't solve any problems. It only magnifies it. Yes, absolutely. Funny thing was, I was having a dinner with a pastor friend of mine who works also, has a church also in this area. And as I was having dinner with him, just almost out of nowhere during our dinner, he blurts out that how people think that by getting married, it will solve their problems, but in fact, that they will only magnify them. That's what he said to me. And I thought he, at first, I thought when he was saying this to me, I thought he was poking fun after listening to my sermon this past Sunday, but he wasn't. He didn't listen to the sermon this past Sunday. He was being sincere in what he was saying because we read the same book, because it's true. You see, if you are given into lust and you get married, those lustful passions don't simply go away. It doesn't matter how beautiful your wife is. And don't we see it literally on display when we see the celebrity elites have incredibly disproportionate divorce rates than the rest of society? And if marriage doesn't solve problems, how are we to look at marriage then? Well, we can find in many places in the Bible where we see that marriage is a gift. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And these are all themes that we have gone over in the past few weeks and months. By showing us the place of honor marriage has, the weight of seriousness it holds, we should also see it this way as well, the way that the Lord is teaching us. But marriage, as we are seeing in the joining of together, even in Adam and Eve, we're seeing it as a gift. It was given to humanity so that partners could complement and edify one another. This gift is so that you could grow then. It's a gift so that you can grow in your sanctification. 
so that if you're deep in a particular sin, this marriage isn't some kind of sanctification of that particular sin or something that you need to worry about in that manner. If you are deep in sin right now, you need to repent. You need to repent, whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever you are, the call that God gives his people, if you are deep in sin, is to repent, not to use some other thing as an excuse, like, that's why I need this gift. That's not true. Otherwise, if you really don't see, if you can't see the importance of repentance in your life, you are guaranteed, guaranteed, like 100% guaranteed to carry that sin into your union with your partner. Seeing all this, there were some in the ancient world that didn't see marriage in this godly way, in the God-given way. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it talks about, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Forbidding marriage is chapter 7. Abstinence of food is chapter 8 that we'll talk over, I'll go over next week too. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here is where the secular idea of marriage veers away from the biblical framework. Marriage is good. It's a gift. But singleness is good. It is a gift. Unlike how the world views these two things as opposing things, the Bible gives us a framework where we see that God gives these gifts to help us and serve Him. And this is the idea here that's read today. Singleness is also good. Single people aren't strange or abnormal or somehow even incomplete. It doesn't disqualify someone from serving God. In fact, we'll see how single people are in a unique position to function within the body of Christ. Some of you have asked me if there's a difference between the gift of singleness and just being single. It's a great question. When I talk about singleness or the gift of singleness, we're talking about being single forever, forever, right? Never getting married. That's the gift of singleness. But if you think that just because you don't have this gift, this passage doesn't apply to you, what you're doing is you're foregoing all the benefits of singleness that Paul talks about in your current, albeit temporary, but your current season of life. And when you start seeing it the way the scripture displays marriage and singleness, you see why this is so good. Again, marriage is good, but in this particular portion of scripture, we are shown why singleness is also good. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And as it says in verse 27, marriage brings worldly troubles. Being single relieves you of those troubles. 
The pressure to marry is also real when you're single. The pressure to marry is a secular pressure. I want you to understand this. This is not a spiritual pressure. No one is going, man, you better marry so that you can spend more time serving the church. No one says that. Some of you that are Asian, though, and have Asian upbringings, will say that by marrying, you are honoring your parents. And I do agree with you on this to a certain degree. But don't be mistaken. There is a primary and there is a secondary. Doesn't mean the secondary isn't important, but saying this is primary means it is of utmost importance. The primary is to glorify God and to obey Him. And if singleness is a gift that you have received, it is good that you stay single no matter what the world says. Here's a side note. Do I personally think that this is a gift that the church today is receiving in plenty of? I don't think so. No. I think there are times and seasons in history where you'll see God give more of this gift to people for the benefit of the church. I do. And I think in the Corinthian era, at this time where the letter was being written, this was especially relevant. However, I still think this gift is there. And it will be good to recognize it when it is given, rather than be confused or plagued by worldly pressures. And when you're pressured, it's when you make bad decisions. You can't make good decisions. Paul wants his readers to be free from these anxieties because when you're single, you think solely about how to please the Lord. You have a sole aim when you are free to do many more things rather than when you have multiple loyalties. And ask anybody that's married, anybody that has children, this is absolutely true. J.B. Lightfoot would say, a man who is a hero in himself becomes a coward when he thinks of his widowed wife and his orphaned children. Being married with kids makes you think twice about wingsuit base jumping or buildering. These are actual things, okay? I'm sure some of you know but I saw this one article from the National Geographic asking, this is the title of the article, about it was asking why so many base jumpers are dying. Now I thought to myself, I was reading, it's because you're jumping off a cliff with like a windbreaker on. That's why people are dying. Um, if you don't know, a wingsuit is like a, basically a windbreaker that they put on, jump off a cliff, they put on their GoPro, and then you see them kind of glide parallel down the mountain. So many people are dying. They're like, why are so many people dying? Uh, I can tell you why. It's not that hard to figure out. Um, there are, there's something called buildering. It's when you climb a skyscraper, right? And there are a bunch of people that do it. Um, <clears throat> they want to be Spider-Man or whatever it is, right? There's a man named James A. Deering whose, whose stage name his name is James Deering, but his stage name, he was famous for scaling this building in 1923. His stage name is Roy Royce. But his name was James Deering, and it stayed with me. It's like, your name is James Deering, and your stage name is Roy Royce. It's like, my name is Eugene Kim, so my stage name will be Herbert Lee. I don't know, like, there's not, not much difference between the two names. 
If I had to pick a stage name, it would probably be something like Flynn. But this man <clears throat> scaled a building in 1923 only to fall to his death after completing the scale. So he climbed to the top, he did it on his own, and then he fell to his death. These are, these are things that you would probably think twice about doing if you're married, especially if you have kids. But the same, the same thing applies to spiritual matters. When you're single, you can easily, more easily give your all, take risks, have this undivided loyalty to the advancement of God's kingdom. Married, Paul is saying, you would take less risks on ventures that could put the livelihood of your family at stake, perhaps. So he's just saying that. This is just truth. In verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul shows by contrast that the married person must have a certain concern about the affairs of the world. For a man, how to please his wife. For a woman, how to please her husband. This is absolutely true. In mar- <clears throat> I'll just give you an example. In my marriage, uh, I usually take out the garbage. By usually, I mean I think my wife has taken out the garbage less times than the number of fingers in my hand. But of course, I don't mind this. I don't mind this. We use 13-gallon bags, and when it's full, it's pretty much the same size as she is. Like, it's the same volume. So early in our marriage, um, you know, this is something that we got used to. But early in our marriage, I was out for a week, like at a conference or a retreat. I, I, can't, I can't remember which one. But, you know, I was just doing my job as a pastor, so I was out at a conference and a retreat, and when I came back, I found out that she had fallen and hit her leg on the curb of the sidewalk, taking out the garbage, right? And now there's a, a permanent scar on her knee, and this is, of course, my fault. No doubt, it's my fault. But ever since then, if I were to leave my house for a while, I'd worry about, guess what? I'd worry about the garbage, and this is absolutely true. If you're married, you worry and you have concerns for your spouse. And this is where Paul is just stating a statement of fact. Your interests, your loyalties, your concerns will be divided. And he says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And by saying this, he is being consistent when he told Timothy as well. All this is for our benefit. It's to promote good order and make sure we give the devotion to the Lord that he deserves. The season that he has given you, he's given you so that you use that season to give that proper devotion to the Lord. That means that if by marriage one thinks then, if by marriage you think that you are exempt from the duties that God has commanded of you, you are sorely mistaken. Some might respond, <clears throat> ah, you have no idea how hard it is to be married. 
or some might even say, and how much harder it is when you have kids. But by saying that, you prove Paul's point. You admit that single people have an advantage since they, that they, they can give proper devotion, undivided devotion. They can keep what is primary, primary. This would go to show that in the very least, in the very least, if you understand this in its context, it, it would be ridiculous, ridiculous to look down on single people in their devotion to God. Why not celebrate it? That in their current season, that God could use them mightily as he builds his church. You should celebrate that, not look down on people in their season of singleness. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Like, what does that even mean, right? This next section, Paul is now going from addressing the goodness of singleness to he's answering a question that a father is dealing with, with an issue with his child, most probably, most likely his daughter. The, the word betrothed might throw you off, but it's simply another word for virgin, someone who's not married yet, right? So back in the day, fathers would give away their daughter or his daughter. This is the same concept today when the father of the bride walks his daughter down, right? And then she walks down the aisle and he gives her away to her future husband. That's the same symbol. All the symbols that we see in marriage ceremonies are from somewhere, a tradition of value that communities in previous societies held dear. And that's why this is doing this, that's why this is happening. What it does though, what these traditions and values, what they did was they helped sustain order and promoted the flourishing of humanity. It's an unfortunate when we lose all that history because we think that we're better than those that came before us, thinking that we have nothing to learn from them. The idea that a higher authority gave his daughter away isn't a new idea. It's been around for ages. I even had to go and ask uh, Esther's father for Esther's hand in marriage. I asked to meet him. I was like, I would like to meet you. I would like to court and marry your daughter. And then he invited me to Queens. So I remember going, I said, where should I meet you in Queens? And he invited me to a McDonald's. This is when, so this, if you're single, now, you, now I'm going to teach you this. This is when you know if he invites you to a McDonald's, he probably doesn't think very highly of you, right? You probably don't have much of a chance, right? He's like, oh, you want to meet with me? Fine. Let's meet at a McDonald's, right? And so I went to this McDonald's, and, um, you know, um, I needed to, I figured you need to work hard for your wife-to-be's hand in marriage. And we went to this McDonald's, we went up to the second floor, and we both just had coffee and he asks me a series of questions like how I would take care of his daughter if he allowed me to marry her. And so I proceeded to tell him how I would 
promise to always take out the garbage. So I failed in that promise, right? But at the time, we talked for hours, and then, you know, I think I see, uh, maybe more to the effect of won him over, and then he told me at the very end of our conversation that the last and most difficult obstacle for you is I needed to pass, that I needed to pass for his blessing would be, would be for me to get the blessing and approval of Esther's mom. So that took another nine months, and now I joke with Esther that her parents like me better than her. So like, I even go golfing with her in-laws, with my in-laws, while she works. So, you know, this, you know, this idea of being given away in marriage and things like that, it's not a foreign idea even in the Bible. Ad, uh, Abraham selected a wife for his son Isaac, right? Judah selected Tamar for his son. Uh, even when there are options given to like Jacob, when Jacob needed to get married, they told him where to go to find his wife. Higher powers frequently chose spouses for their vassals too. Like Pharaoh, he chose a wife for Joseph in Egypt. Even when there was love between the two, the consent of the father was important, like in 1 Samuel 18.20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. They, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Of course, it was for nefarious reasons that Saul consented. It was to stumble David. But regardless, we see that for most of history, this was true, and even depicted in more recent historical things like plays, like the, the Broadway play Fiddler on the Roof, where the daughters sing about how they want the matchmaker to find them a good match. There's a song, Matchmaker, Matchmaker, Find Me a Match, right? Uh, if you don't know, you could easily YouTube Fiddler on the Roof now and watch it. But of course, you know, now in 2020, we're so much better, right? I've actually read a comment where some people hum the tune of Matchmaker as they swipe through their dating app. Like, don't you see, you're, you're like recognizing you need a higher power to figure out who to date and marry. And so we're in this place now, in ancient, you know, Corinth, uh, Greece, Rome. Paul is also responding to a father, a question that he had about his daughter and what to do, right? The idea that fathers were giving away their daughters, even during Roman times was prevalent, and in the Corinthian church was also prevalent. Parents would choose the partners for their children. However, however, when we get down to the place and the time when Paul wrote this letter to the people of Corinth, this sort of tradition was starting to break down. Surprise, surprise, right? It was starting to break down. Roman... Uh, thinkers and other ancient thinkers, they would write and say that this um, ordinance or this kind of structure that was breaking down was one of the beginnings of the breakdown of Roman authority. Even Roman thinkers back in the day, they were thinking, they were saying that because this father giving away his daughter to be a bride. That was starting to break down. Roman authority was also starting to break down. The Roman Empire was starting to break down. This is what secular thinkers were saying. 
when parents started to lose the right to have a say in their children's marriage. Some scholars have surmised that this was the beginning of the breakdown of the entire Roman Empire. The idea of honoring your father and mother is so basic to the order of human flourishing. It's the fifth commandment, but it's the first of the commandments pertaining to loving our neighbor, right? Without solid authority figures in the home, a father and mother, children have no foundation of understanding authority and order outside the home. And we see this prevalent in today. Children that grow up without a father and mother properly showing them what authority figures should look like have problems dealing with outside authority figures. And thus we see a breakdown of society, of simply seeing all authority as either evil or bad. Or on the flip side, it's something to covet and overtake and claim for yourself. All right? We can only see this in this kind of black and white dichotomy. But this particular who submitted his question to the Q&A that Paul is going to answer saw that it was good to keep his single, single children at home. He realized that there are many more hands to help around the house, farm, business, etc. And their devotions and loyalties could also be single-minded in giving, in giving like their givenness to the Lord. And so here it is. When you see the benefits of singleness, after all the things that have been laid out by Paul, when you see the benefits of singleness, shouldn't you just keep your children from getting married? That's the question. If you see the benefits of singleness, shouldn't you just keep people, especially your children, from getting married? But Paul is brilliant in his answer here. Instead of just giving a simple answer, his answer is so nuanced by laying the foundation of wisdom so that fathers could make good future decisions for their children as well. You need to see first if they have the gift, right? If your child, even though you try to keep them celibate, wants to get married, their passions are strong, then you're saying, let them get married. It's not a sin. But if a child has firmly established that you have, you have established that the child has the gift of permanent singleness, he will do well not to let them marry. And so Paul guides the father through this decision by giving these guidelines, right? And number one, when he says firmly established in his heart, he's saying he has settled the matter in his own mind, right? So this is not some kind of running torment or storm in his own mind. It's settled in his mind. And then he's saying being under no necessity, meaning there's no other marriage that he is contract that he is in with somebody else. And then having the right authority. Exousia is authority. And this is where it's... um, you know, translated desires under control, but it's a, does he have the right authority to do so? And number four, he believes he has made the right judgment. Kekurken means, you know, this, this, um, this conviction, uh, this judgment to keep the virgin as a virgin, to keep the single person as a single person. Uh, the first and last criteria might sound similar, and it may sound something to the effect of are you sure? And then he gives some guidelines, and then he ends with, are you sure, right? That's how it would probably would have sounded. But Paul gives this criteria to lay a foundation for fathers to understand at that time. Did you discern rightly? Are you convinced, right? Do you have the proper authority? 
almost like a checklist to make sure they've properly sat down, weighed and measured the weight of the decision that needs to be made. If so, if you've done all these things, you've done the right thing. You've married your kids off, good, that's great. They'll stay single, even better. This is what Paul is saying. This should help parents to see that in their discernment, they must be looking out for what particular gift God has given his children instead of simply doing what they desire or what they think is best. Because many times, it's just current popular culture that may be the driving force of your decision for your kids, and that is going to open up a world of trouble for you in the future. Now, for some of you that are single might be reading this and asking the inevitable question, how can I know that I'm making the right decision? For you married people, you're done. Like you've already made that, you've made the vow. There's no, you're not asking that, right? But for single people, how can I know I'm making the right decision? Am I doing the will of God? Uh, but looking and studying the Bible right here, they will even direct your questions. First of all, you would be asking, what is, when you look at the Bible, when you read the Bible and you read passages like this, they will even be directing the questions that you'll ask, right? You would, first of all, be asking, what is marriage as a part of God's design? As God has designed it, what is marriage? Then after knowing this, then you would ask, do I then want to get married? Knowing what marriage is as a part of God's design, do I then want to get married? And then you would ask after that, what do I want in a marriage partner? What do I want my spouse to look like? There is a sequence as you study the Bible. It doesn't get flipped around like many of people today would suffer from. And then after you would think about what do I want in a marriage partner, you would think, from whom should I seek counsel? Then you'll finally know the answer to when am, I uh, when am I ready to get married? Uh, if, if you probably spoken with me about God's will, there is a small, small book that I recommend. It's free on Kindle, or you could buy a hard copy. It's just a tiny pamphlet-like book by R.C. Sproul. It's titled, Can I Know God's Will? And Can I Know God's Will About My Marriage is just actually chapter four. And he, just, he goes over this in a further detail. But the Bible is what shows us what marriage should be, what we should look for in a partner, how we should get counsel. All these things are laid out in the word of God. Verse 39, it continues to go, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier. She remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. This last section is addressed to widows, and we're talking about remarriage. If your husband dies, then you are free to remarry, but only in the Lord, pointing to that person must be a Christian. Again, if you are a Christian, you belong to the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ, and you can only marry someone else who also belongs to that body. 
you won't have the same interest. Your primaries won't be primary if you marry a non-Christian. The things that excite you, the things that you're waiting for, the things that you're desiring and you want to promote, that you want to share, is completely not shared with your partner. This stuff wouldn't even excite them. Reading this would bore them. It would like maybe even turn people off. And so this is why he says, only in the Lord. Uh, but if she doesn't remarry, it's probably going to be easier on her. Again, this isn't just mere opinion, but Paul is saying that he has the Spirit of God and is showing that the Corinthians, while they have all these opinions, like if we took a survey or poll of this sanctuary, of people in the sanctuary right now, you would have all these opinions and gatherings about marriage and singleness. Oh, if you only knew my experience. And he, he is showing us that what he is saying isn't just a mere opinion or speculation that he wants added to that list and then debate on what they think is better. He's showing us that what Scripture gives us is the best. What Scripture gives us is the best. The church, the body of Christ, then you see, if you see all of this in context in chapter 7, the church, the body of Christ, is made up of a diversity of people with different gifts but they were all given to use for his glory. Whether you are married or single, God's design is that you use what he has given you in your specific season to glorify God. If married for wives to submit to their husbands, husbands to love their wives, parents to be a godly example for their children, and for single people, to serve God with that dimension of single-mindedness only they can do, recognizing that the full complement of God's design and purpose is for the body of Christ. So that's why we recognize these gifts in the church and we serve him with joy and thanksgiving, not being envious of those that are around us, whether you are single or married, but by blessing and encouraging them to serve God to an even a greater degree as we see the day all the more approaching. And all of this points to our joyful union with Christ for eternity. The things that you see here, the gifts that are being given to the body of Christ, all points to our joyful union with Christ for eternity. And this is why we are being taught these things. That's why these, all these things are relevant to us, whether it's talking about singleness, whether it's talking about widows, whether it's talking about remarrying, divorcing, getting married. All these things are to show that God has a plan and it's up to us to do his will, thereby glorifying him. That's why we ought to also pray for that discernment. Just like the Father, he needed discernment, we also need that discernment. Not opinion, not what you think is best, but really being able to discern what the Word of God is teaching his people, his church. And this is what I pray that we will continue to walk in as we continue to study 1 Corinthians, the Bible, the Word of God, walking in truth being a light to all those that are around us, showing the world that following God's commands are actually really good. 
They're amazing. It promotes flourishing. It's full of blessing. It makes us joyful. And so this is what we want to be a witness of. So let's pray. Help us now, O Lord, to search deeply into the call and the gifts that you have given each one of us in your church. And help us to live out these convictions wisely and well for your glory and your glory alone. Let's take this time to pray. And where are you in your season, whether a single, married, kids, no kids, whatever it is, God's desire is for you to glorify him with the gift that he has given you of today. And so pray that you can really be that witness to the world wherever you are for his glory. Let's take this time to pray.